0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. My name is Michael Cohen. Thank you very much for tuning into today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you enjoy the show, and maybe a comment if you have some feedback or something you'd like to, to share with me. I check all the comments, I read all of them. So thank you for everything everyone who has submitted some feedback so far, and hopefully I'll hear from some more of you as we continue down the road. Support for Cohen's Corner is brought to you by Manscaped, the industry leader in men's below-the-belt grooming. Fellas, are you prepared to unveil your summer body? Manscaped is here to ensure your post-quarantine body is ready for the wild. Don't be the guy at the beach with a bear rug on your chest, and if you happen to add some pounds during quarantine, the least you can do is make sure everything is smooth and hairless. There's nothing better than finding that significant other, and there's lots of benefits when you do, and one of them, I'm telling you, is they can shave your back. And that's what Manscaped is here to help you with. Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full-body grooming game. They have forever changed the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the essential Lawnmower 3.0. It's a waterproof, cordless body trimmer, and there's a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This is the best trimmer on the market for those of you in need of a chest shave. This third-generation trimmer features skin-safe technology to reduce manscaping accidents because... Well, nobody wants an accidental nipple piercing. You can also adjust the settings to get a length you like, and you can stay on top of it with almost no effort at all. You can even trim an arrow, pointing to the promised land if you fellas are bold enough. Be sure to use their crop cleanser to keep your hair and skin healthy. It's an all-in-one formula, so it's as good for healthy chest hair as it is for your skin. Inside the perfect package you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer because we know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing a bathing suit all day long. You'll also find the crop reviver it's a tool designed to give you a pep in your step down below the belt subscribe to the perfect package and get a new blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months for a limited time subscribers get two free gifts the shed travel bag which is a $39 value and the patented high performance reduced chafing manscaped boxer briefs get 20% off plus free shipping with the code cohen c-o-h-e-n at manscaped.com do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your entire order from manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN. Once again, 20% off your entire order plus free shipping at manscaped.com using the promo code COEN, COHEN. C O H E N. Trim your chesticles with the besticles. Today's episode is one my Packers followers from Green Bay and around the world are sure to enjoy, and that's because Leroy Butler is an all-time Packers great. Leroy played safety for the Packers from 1990 to 2001, after the franchise drafted him in the second round of the 1990 NFL Draft. He was a high school All-American at Robert E. Lee High School in Jacksonville, Florida, and then he was a college All-American at Florida State. His career in the NFL only exceeded those two highs when he made the Pro Bowl four times, first in 1993, then every year from 1996 through 1998, and he was a four-time first-team All-Pro member as well in all four of the same seasons. He was named to the NFL's 1990s All-Decade team, he's a member of the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame, and he's also a member of the league's prestigious 2020 club. Those are NFL players who have at least 20 interceptions in their career and at least 20 sacks as well. Earlier this year, he was named a finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and in my opinion, he should be inducted, and hopefully that happens in a future year because he narrowly missed out this year and Leroy butler is just a fascinating individual who remains in the state of wisconsin helping out at lambeau field being active in the organization he's on the radio in wisconsin a lot and he's just a a tremendous guy and one of the nicest players that i had the opportunity to meet in my time covering green bay this podcast was particularly fascinating because we spent large parts of it talking about racism and race and everything going on in the world right now Leroy grew up in Jacksonville at a time when segregation was the norm. He called it, you know, so normal that nobody batted an eye, essentially. And he had some unbelievable stories to share about what that looked like as a young teenager going to high school, a school that was named Robert E. Lee High School. And so there was a lot of interesting and fascinating discussion related to the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's happening from a social standpoint in our country right now. Of course, we talked football as well and Leroy Leroy had me in stitches with some of his stories from inside the Packers locker room. You won't want to miss that. And overall, it was just one of the more fun episodes I've recorded so far because Leroy has such a, a dynamic and infectious personality. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. I think it will be a lot of fun for you. And without further ado, here is a conversation with Leroy Butler. Well, Roy, thank you very much for taking some time to join me. I know you've been spending a lot of time with family during this quarantine and staying at home and things like that. What have the last few months been like for you guys?
1: Well, for me, uh, having kids in a quarantine, it's pretty interesting because I was talking to my wife about this, that we normally, because we all have schedules, and we very rarely ate together at the table. Right because i'm the I'm the chef, I do all the cooking one hundred percent. me and my wife had an agreement, Mike. we had an agreement. I would do all the cooking, cleaning, pay all the bills, wash clothes, clean the house, everything domestically, just keep the kids away from me, and I don't want to deal with none of their problems. That's our agreement, <laughs> and that's the best agreement of all time, because I got you know we have two teenagers in the house and my nine year old son. So we never really ate dinner together. You know, the girls would come in, they usually, you know, order out somebody delivering food or I cook for my wife and my son every night, but the older girls, they usually get their own food. But when we were quarantined, you know, we all ate together. I thought it was cool. I mean, just talking to them, one is 17 and one is 16. So they got a lot going on. So it was great. It was great. I mean, and I had to explain to them kind of what's kind of going on because, it was just so much information out there on the internet as for as the coronavirus and covid nineteen stuff like that, but other than that, you know, I think for the most part, we did very well.
0: A couple of weeks ago, I had a, a basketball coach on the show. He's a head coach at an HBCU in Mississippi, and he was talking about what it was like to to have, you know, either his own young kids or the players that he coaches uh, around him or near him or you know just conversing with him at a time when obviously the pandemic is is causing a lot of problems for people and that's a, a lot of confusion and things as well, but you know then the other side of that is everything that's going on in our country with black lives matters and the the necessary and ongoing change Um, that this country needs to make to, you know, better involve and better take care of African Americans. And when I was doing my research to talk to you, I was reading an article that was in Sports Illustrated back in your playing days. And you had some quotes in there about, you know, the city you grew up in, and specifically the neighborhood you grew up in in Jacksonville. And so I'm curious, for somebody who came from an environment that was overwhelmingly black, that, you know, had some um, impoverished areas and some people that, you know, went down the wrong path and things. What has it been like for you, and and what have you talked about with your family and your kids in regards to everything that's happening right now in terms of social change?
1: You know, I wanted to keep my book, uh, Leroy Butler's Story, I wanted to keep it around 200 pages. It was a lot of things I left out of it because I didn't want it to be too long. But it was a few stories I left out that I was going to put in my next book about me growing up. And I've been working on it. It won't be ready for another year or so. But one of the two stories that really brought a lot of, you know, because I grew up in the South now, Michael. This is tough now. The South, racism is just like as normal as food there. They'll walk up to you, call you N-word, and if you're a white person, a black person will, will walk up to you. And if you say, you know, say there's a lot of racial stuff that's always going on. So that will make it right. Because the Bubba Wallace's of the world, we went through that every day. Right. I saw nooses in my locker at Robert E. Lee. I went to Robert E. Lee. I remember telling my mom, I don't want to go to that school where a Confederate guy that would keep us. I don't want to go to a school like that. And my mom which was a brilliant person, of course, because she's my role model. She said, said, it's not where you are, it's the difference that you make. And when you tell a 17-year-old kid that, sometimes they'll get it, sometimes it'll go over their head, because she wanted me to understand that, you know, just say Lee High School. And then she explained it to me. And then when I went back to my teachers, my teachers is, we have a saying um, with your friends, you got to keep it 100 I mean, 100%, whether or not I like it or not. And my teachers, they kept it 100% with me. They said, yes, this is how it work. This, 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 and this. We may not go over it in history class. But yes, this is... So I used to open my locker. And I'm, wait a minute now, you got to understand something. I was the first Consensus All-American at Robert E. Lee High School. And I was the top 33 players of the century. So I was very well-known. Everybody knew who Leroy Butler was. I don't know how people got in my locker, but they would put nooses in there. They would put Confederate flag stuff in there. You know what I did? Throw it in the garbage and keep it moving. Because I was used to it. Wow. I wasn't going to let them take the dignity of that. Because down there, there's no interracial dating. There was no, like... You know, the white people ate, you know, it wasn't like segregated, but it was like segregated. Sure. In other words, like you kind of be where you are and with the people you're comfortable with. And it was tough on a young African-American. I remember my mom, I have uh, three brothers. She sat us down. I was like eight. And a matter of fact, I was disabled at the time. So I wasn't doing a lot of outside stuff. But she told me, listen, when you go outside, I give you my number to the house. If the police pull you over, don't say a word. Say, call my mom. Don't argue with them. Don't say nothing to them because they're not going to listen. Just give them your number. Say, call my mom cause they'll have phones or radios or something. Call my mom. And it the other instance that was really impactful to me that really just showed me how tough it was in Jacksonville. Good friend of mine, we were, um, went down a detour. It just got dark on our way home. We were teenagers, but he had a car because he was like, maybe a year older than I was. So we went down to detour and as we were going down the detour, we stopped at a red light and there was, some, um, um, prostitute types or street streetwalkers or sure. whatever you call them. We were just walking around. And so we stopped and we were like looking, of course, and my friend kind of whistled at him, you know, just to say hi or whatever. Then we drove off and they said, you know, we got three police cars behind us. Wow. So he got scared and he just drove off. I said, listen, you need to stop. He's just driving. He just, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. We didn't do anything wrong. I said, well, why are you running? I mean, why you? You just ran 10 red lights. You, so he went back to the projects. He drove back to the projects, a place where he knows, pulled over. Fifteen cops get out, got guns drawn right at our heads.
0: Holy cow.
1: And I'm going to tell, tell you how God is good. When he pulled into the apartments, the projects where I'm from, it was right around right, maybe 100 feet from my grandmother's house. My grandmother gets out in her house coat and her slippers got rolls in her hair. That's my grandbaby. He's never done anything wrong. What's the problem? Well, these guys, was? we think they were trying to pick up uh, prostitutes. And at the time, I didn't know what that was. Right. they I mean, old enough to, I mean, what are you talking about? I, I, and then... You know, I'm just saying this to myself, but again, my mom said, don't talk. So my grandmother's talking to this guy, and this is how I know God is good. So the police say, well, this young man he pointed at me, he looked like he was asleep, because I had just woke up. I had just kind of, because he woke me up. Look at these girls, because I was asleep. And he asked me, were you asleep? I said, yeah, I was just woke up. What's, what's, I don't really understand what's going on. He said, well, yeah. They ran our background, oh yeah, this kid his just he just looked wrong guy. We're gonna give you to your grandmother. Don't hang out with this guy. And my friend had a record. It's long I mean a long record. But I didn't know. Him. I'm just trying to fit in. Sure. And they took him to jail. Wow. And I've never been in trouble. But I'm t- I've never seen a gun before other on T V. Right. But that could have went real bad, but I remember what my mom said: "Don't say nothing. You just give it." And I told him. He said, "You got the weapons on you?" I said, "I got a piece of paper in my pocket, got my mom's name on it. Can you please call her?" They went to cursing and saying all this stuff, whatever. But it was a, a supervisor said, "Listen, this kid, man, come on. You could. We know criminals. This kid is scared because I'm shaking like a leaf and I'm crying." My grandmother, who she didn't play, okay? She's from <laughs> she's from way back. She said, that's my grandson, he's never done anything wrong, I'll take him home. So I, I went home. I didn't have to go to court, I didn't have to do anything, but I, I left that story out because it was too long. Sure. So I thought I'd put in the next version of my book, because I think it's important, not so much for this time, but it just shows you how things can go right or wrong based on what your parents teach you. And I was just so fortunate. And, I mean, that was just very impactful.
0: The the first story you told about, you know, finding a noose in your locker or a Confederate flag, that's... I mean, that's so disgusting in so many ways. I wonder, as you got older and you were able to, you know, put some more context in your life and in the world, because when this happens, you're a teenager and you're young and you don't have a lot of life experiences yet. But as you got older, did you find a a point in time where you got angry about those things or or really upset when you understood just how offensive and and awful they were?
1: Well, you know, when you're used to something, you kind of like look at it differently because my mom used to tell me that people are going to hate you just because the way that you look and you don't control that you have no you just wake up you're the color you are and i i said i'm confused by that because i had my only friend that when i say friend i don't use that term lightly i mean friend like I trust you. Like right. if I'm in, you and my foxhole, you will not go to sleep type friend. His name was Danny. And I say, Danny, um, I'm confused. Cause he was white. I say, why do kids hate you? I know why they hate me. I know why they're yelling the N word at me. Cause so we would eat lunch together. I said, well, why do they hate you? I don't get you the nicest guy. Oh, that's fine. They hate me because I'm Jewish. Yeah, they just hate me because I'm Jewish. I said, but wait a minute, how do they know? Oh, because of my name. I said, but wait a minute. Now, we're little kids. We don't. I mean, how can you teach hate? And he said, no, I don't care. Me and you can sit over here. We're, we're friends to this day, by the way. He was my only friend. And I, and he, he was just, he's Jewish. And I'm like, I can't. See a Jewish guy. I, I don't. I never. I, he was just the nicest guy, and he would like if he saw anything, well, any kind of thing derogatory, he was he would just say, "Man, listen, don't why you being like that. It's Kind of silly to be like that. We should love everybody, and, and let's just and it just back then. But again, down south, kids thought it was corny if you wasn't racist. Jeez, and he was like, it was like. How do we live in a world? And then I'm going to tell you when it turned, when some of the white kids was like, I'm not like that. That's when I said, you know what, God, you you got something here. Because you grow up, you think everybody, all white people are racist and all black people hate white people, but it wasn't. It was a young lady named Sarah because I was getting bullied. She put a stop to that in eighth grade she came over and sat with me and danny and she was brilliant she was she just said listen don't worry about nothing if anybody bothers you say it, you just let me know and i said well i don't want you to get in trouble yeah, no because and... we need to put a stop to this and that's when she explained the word racism and racist she explained it eighth grader i said "Well, what's the difference because my mom told me about racism She said, racist, sometimes you can say something. It can be racist, but you don't even realize it, and it's funny. Those are for comedians. You know, they get, you give them space for that. But racism means you wake up hating a particular person because they don't look like you, because they don't have what you have or something. I I thought that was a brilliant way to put it. In eighth grade, I told her, because my mom never told me about racism. He just told me about racism, which was more impactful.
0: You know, athletes often say that when they're on the basketball court or the football field or whatever sport they're playing, that that can be an escape for them from any other stresses or pressures in their life. But I'm wondering, in your situation, because of the environment you grew up in and where you lived in Jacksonville and then where you went to school in Tallahassee, did you find that, that racism still bled into your football experience
1: as well? Zero. Zero. Here, here's the thing about it. I played for Cork, Coach Corky or Charles Corky Rogers, the winningest coach in the state of Florida. And he just passed away. And this when I gravitated towards sports. And I said, wait a minute now. My whole life, white people used to treat me horrible. Guys were ride around in trucks with gun racks and confederate flag, calling you the n-word stuff like that i remember uh, real quick uh, uh it was like 15 of us or so we were going to the pool it was a community pool and these guys rode in these trucks and they just said just letting the n-word fly just oh you know, they just, i kept walking all my friends they're chasing the trucks throwing stuff want to fight And they said, why didn't you fight? I said, he didn't say my name. If he had said Leroy Butler, hey, okay, I know him. But he didn't say my name. I learned to put my blinders on. Like, my mom showed me a horse race, how horses keep their blinders on to stay focused. Right. And she just showed me a picture. She said, stay focused. Don't let people know they can get to you by saying something. You just know not to mess with those. When I say mess with, like, be friends with people. Sure. don't. That's how southern people talk. Don't mess with that guy. Don't mess around with people like that. I said, okay, great. But sports, I noticed in the locker room at Lee High School, the white players didn't want to be at the school. The white players didn't want the Confederate flag because when we, we were we were blue, and um, we were blue and kind of silver, that was our color days to fight the battles. I didn't have to get upset with the nooses and the credits. They would just find out who did it or look for people because they were like, Laurent's our brother, man, not to mention he's the best player. (laughs) But that's when I say, you know what? Okay, I get it now. All white people are not like this. It's just a percentage of people that really don't understand that you could be my brother if you open up a little bit. And I'm not asking for you to admit white supremacists because you can see that. Of course. I'm just asking for acknowledgement. And we talk, that's what we talk about in the locker room. Cause we all come from different areas, but coach Bobby Bowden, Mike, I'm going to tell you, he was the best at it. He knew about race relations. He was way ahead of this stuff. He said, we're like his kids. White, black, straight, gay. I don't care what gender you are. When you're in my locker room with me, we're together. And we treat other people how you want to be treated. And he would reference the Bible a lot. But he would just keep us focused when you're in the locker room. Stay together. Don't let people tear you apart. And that's what took me all the way to I knew God was testing me and said wait a minute we're going to find out how tough this guy really is we're going to put you in Green Bay I don't want to get ahead of that right. and we're going to let you find out okay all this stuff really what you say it is we're, we're going to put you right there where not a lot of African Americans are and seeking you thrive but yeah I learned with sports you just You just come together, and that's my brother. White, black, I don't care. That's my brother. And we can have some differences. We agree to disagree. We're not not always going to agree, but that's my brother. And I'm going to fight for my brother. No, I'm not letting anybody say anything. I'm coming to his defense to find out what he's wrong. When he's wrong, he's wrong. I'm not going to condone what he did, but he's still my brother.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. And, and I can see why when you're in an environment, you know, like you were at, in Tallahassee with a locker room full of guys supporting you, it, it could be, you know, a different kind of feeling than anything you had experienced before in Jacksonville. And so I can imagine that as you started to mature and become more of an adult in college and things that you, I don't know, did you, did you kind of feel a little bit more... um did you did you feel like more relaxed and more open to the world because the people in your immediate life every day were more supportive
1: of you? You know that's a good question because um, I I wanted to find out were people going to be nice to me because I was an all American athlete. Uh, was I um, an African American? And when I got to Tallahassee, we had a school nearby. Uh, FAMU Florida you know Florida Atlanta Florida A&M University I apologize Florida A&M University and uh, that's the HBCU yep I said I need to go over there and hang out you know I said this is man I never saw like fraternities and sororities parties parties and man it was a lot of it was Obviously, a lot of African-American there, my culture. You know, then I, it dawned on me my freshman year, Florida State got the same thing. I thought it was just over at FAMU. <laughs> no, Florida State got – I didn't know we had fraternities and sororities. I thought it was just at the HBCU. I, I, I didn't know. They said, no, we got the same chapters, and we, we're all together, but we have different things, and that's okay, great. And it was like a big mixture of, you know, just a bunch of kids, a big melting pot of kids from all over. But again, you have to remind yourself, this is the South. Okay? Things are different here. It's just different. And every Wednesday, this when it really opened my eyes. Every Wednesday, it was student union at Florida State. And... My first time out there as a freshman, people playing volleyball, guys are sitting around, you know, you got these sororities, they're doing these step marches and you got sure. fraternities doing all this stuff going on. It's just a great atmosphere. It was white kids with the black kids, the black kids with the white, everybody was mixed all together. And it wasn't even a, like black people there. It wasn't. It just seemed like, I said, these are the kids who are going to figure this stuff out. That's why it's not surprising me that the kids who are protesting and the kids are doing this stuff are younger kids. Because they don't want their world to look like it when they get 50 or 60 years old.
0: Exactly. They don't like
1: the way the world looks. And I applaud them. I really do. And I stand in ovation. That's the Nobel Peace Prize would be two things. The young millennials... And cell phones for videos.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Without the videos. Exactly. The videos are sparking a lot of this action.
1: No question. And I just, when I saw that, I said, well, because I remember I was in a black neighborhood and the projects, no white people, none, zero. The only white people I saw when I went to school, and that was it. and And I remember to go back a minute. I remember I was going to Terry Parker High School for the spring, ninth grade, going to 10th grade. I'm playing spring football with them. I got a uniform on. My mom got a letter, and it says, nope, he has to go to Robert E. Lee High School based on his last name. They want kids to just not be a certain area. Your name based is where you go to school, and they'll bust you wherever. And that's when I my told the coach, hey, well, this is my last day. I'm going to Lee. He was devastated. He wanted me to come to Terry Parker High School, and I ended up going to Lee. And they had a big football tradition, but I didn't want to go to uh, what I thought would be a school that would treat me differently just because of my color, because of the name of the school. Not all the kids there didn't do this. But it was a, a percentage of racist stuff every single day that I had to go through. And I knew it was going to be that way. So I was tough for it. But going to college really was just so refreshing that you know, I didn't have any hair. But I could let my hair down and say, I don't have to worry <laughs> about racism no more. I mean, the police, some of them was black, some of them was white. They were nice to you. You know, you're just being a silly college kid if you get in trouble. You don't get a record. I mean, you know, it's just... It was just great.
0: So, as your career at Florida State continues, and you continue to get better and better, and and it's pretty clear that you're one of the best defensive players in the country, not to mention one of the best defensive backs. And you know, by the time you're a senior, you're winning awards and things. You're an All-American. What did it feel like? I mean, were were you kind of like the proverbial rock star on campus?
1: You know, what for me? For me. It wasn't surprising because of how my mentality was. When I was disabled, I told my mom that I wanted to play in the NFL. I said I was, I was a young kid in a wheelchair, and braces on my legs like Forrest Gump, and she asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told her verbatim, I want to play in the NFL to get you out of the projects. So I was expecting it. What threw me back was I was a Proposition 48 my first year at Florida State, so I missed one whole year of college. So I only had three years to really get it together. So when I was a consensus All-American and got a chance to meet Bob Hope and flew out and to California and did all these things, I wasn't shocked by it. I really wasn't. This is was what I was expecting because I, I really felt like God said, this is how your life is going to go. So, all you got to do is just keep your blinders on, what my mom said. But I, I was, it was kind of shocking though, because if you dream something and you wake up and it's there, it is impactful. But I wasn't surprised because that's what I expected.
0: That makes sense. I could see why that would be the case, and you know, by, again, by the time you're a senior, it's very clear that you're going to make it to the NFL, and you end up being a second-round pick, number 48 overall, to the Packers. But I got to ask one last question about Florida State before we move on to some some Packers talk, and that is the first game of your senior year, and also a game during your junior year. You had an opportunity to play against Brett Favre, and I'm wondering how often that might have come up in the locker room years later. <laughs>
1: More than you know, okay? He used to brag about that all the time. He threw a touchdown. If I was blitzing off the corner. We did what we call a corner blitz, and he threw it over my head. I jumped to try to block it, and they scored. And, oh, yeah, we brought it up tons of times, tons. Oh, and that they were in black jerseys. We were in white jerseys. It was 95 degrees, and they still beat us. And, oh, yeah, we talked about that quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Did, did you know at the time that that Brett Favre was going to be a good player?
1: Oh yeah, he was a Heisman Trophy candidate. That's how we um, scouted him, and you know, you get the scouting report. Oh yeah, we of course. I knew, I knew one thing. I knew every quarterback I played with in college he had the strongest arm, and and which I had no idea I was going to play with him. He wasn't scared to make certain throws. Right. So in other words. We can pretty much scout you based on, oh, he won't make that throw, so we can run this particular coverage. But if we scout you and say, no, this guy will make any throw, it's kind of hard to scout you. It really is. You just got to play your base stuff, and hopefully you can force him into making mistakes. But he ain't scared, and that's why he's just – I'm not surprised he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, the guy was just truly amazing.
0: What do you remember about the the weekend that you got drafted because when you joined the Packers Brett is is not there yet and and you have an opportunity to to join this franchise as you mentioned in Wisconsin in a place that is almost as far away, you know, both culturally and weather-wise as you can get from where you grew up and and all of a sudden you're there. You're a second round pick and they're counting on you to play right away. What do you remember about that whole couple of months experience?
1: Well, it was it was shocking. I remember on the plane, um, flying there, and I remember the pilot. And I was with my girlfriend. I was with the pilot. Says a beautiful day in Green Bay. The wind is coming from the north. It's a beautiful seventeen degrees. Oh God! My girlfriend head turned turned around like the Exorcist, and she said, "Did he just say that?" I said, "No, no, no, no." The pilot from the south, I'm sure. He said seventy-seven. And as if the pilot heard, He said, well, I hope you guys got your coats on. At the time, I had on shorts. It was like May, April, late April, or May or something like that. And I just had some shorts. When we left Jacksonville, it was hot, like 85 degrees. It was nice. And we shit on shorts as well. A young man I never met came up and gave me his jacket. Never met this guy, white guy. Never met him before. And his wife took off her coat and gave it to my girlfriend, Packer Coats. And they said, you're the second-round pick, Leroy Buck. I said, yes, sir. He said, yeah, man, you got to get you a coat. I said, yeah, we just came from Jacksonville. He said, I know. And he had like a short sleeve shirt on. And it didn't bother. I said, man, these are the nicest people. And when I landed in God's country, Austin Struble Airport, I was amazed. It was like I—it I was during the week. I think it was a thousand people there to welcome me. They had all these signs up. I say, I said to myself, "Do these people have jobs, or what's going on? What's the big deal? I'm just a second round pick. What's the big deal?" And people were just into the, the Packers. It was just—it was amazing. I—it was—I—I I was speechless. But my personality, as you know me. I like to say hi. I like sure. to talk to people. Blah blah blah, and and I just got to know it. And people say, "Man, we love you." You know, Packers or this Packers. Are... I said, "This is great because I never had that." And all these people were white. I never had that because when you at Florida State, you don't mingle with people like that, right? The students are different. That's different. But like fans, no. No fans never got close to us like this. We go to the airport, we have two hundred cops like you got to stay back, but this is like i i at first i said this this has to be a dream I mean is it like this all the time and it was it was just truly amazing. With the confidence
0: that you had growing up saying that, you know, and telling your mom that you were going to reach the NFL and then being an All-American in high school and being an All-American in college, were you the type of rookie that arrived in the league with a lot of confidence or were you nervous about having to play from day one because you played almost immediately as soon as you got to, to Lambeau Field?
1: Well, it was quiet, optimism, and I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn. And... I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I really did because this is, this is this is like new to me. I didn't know. I really didn't know because I was a three-day holdout. That made it worse. So when I got to camp, they were already practicing.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, Tom Brotz, the GM, I remember him calling in, calling my agent, okay, we'll give him whatever he wants, get him in here. We need him in here. Cause we had all older secondary,
0: right? And that was when holdouts so, were much more common.
1: Oh, what you is all the time because they had something called Plan B, to where it wasn't a free agency. They could just protect like six guys, the top guy, everybody else get the giblets. So it was really unfair until Reggie White came along. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but when I got there, I was like. I'm all alone. Because had I been on time, I'd have been with the other rookies. I could hide amongst them and just kind of be one of the guys. Back then, they write your name on your helmet. So I was like, oh, man. And then when I got there, they were already at practice. Because he had, had to go sign my contract. And uh, I'm like, uh-oh, this is – what do I do? Because they just sit. Okay, just go downstairs. My agent, broads, you know, just – go downstairs. Bob Harlan, just go downstairs. I'm like, what are you, just go downstairs and they'll take care of you. So I go down the stairs, I'm in the locker room, I'm like, whoa. And I in the locker room. Nobody's there because they're at practice. Right. And I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Like, I'm just like, so I said, well, let me go find a locker. And I saw my locker. And then, one of the managers came over Um did they tell you to go to practice? or to see? I say, Sir, I have no idea. <laughs> he said, Okay, let's just get you some equipment and you can just go down to practice. I said, oh, Okay, all right. Yeah, so he gave me my stuff. So I get down there. I know I go down and the security guy is waiting on me, but I didn't know. He's waiting. Hey, hey, come here. So he took me down and they radio ahead to Lenny and Leroy Butler's here. I said, Oh, no. I said, don't tell a coach I'm here. He's going to like, he blew the whistle, blew the whistle. Everybody come up. Here I come through the gate. Wow. Everybody's like, oh, is our second round pick, blah, blah, blah. And the nicest guy to me was Mark Lee. He was a cornerback. He was a Packer Hall of Famer a couple years ago. He said, young blood, stick with me. I'll show you all the ropes. And the other guy who was very nice to me was Brian Noble. Brian Noble would not let them rookie haze me till like, I get up and sing Okay, because I offered to do it.
0: You don't strike no me, fun if you're
1: you, going to just like to do it.
0: I was going to say, you don't strike me as somebody that would shy away from singing in front of a group of people.
1: Nah. I'd say that because these rookies, I don't want to do it. And they I'd make up all kind of weird stuff. I'd say, I'll do it. What do y'all want me to say? It's, they just yell yeah, stuff, stuff that you don't have no idea. But well, they were yelling songs that I knew. <laughs> it was very weird. And it kind of backfired in a way. And then I just started telling, I said, I can't say, but I can tell some jokes. I'll tell them some jokes, and they start to like me. And then they'll come up to you. Hey, hey, Rook, go get us some Crown Royal and some vodka <laughs> and deliver it at this address. I'm like, okay. I said, wait a minute, I don't smoke, I don't drink, how do you buy alcohol? I mean, what do you do? I'm, I'm dead serious. I'm like, <laughs> where do you go? So I asked, um, I think it was Rich Moran, uh, he was a line. I said, where do I go to get alcohol? He laughed so hard. He said, you go to the liquor store. I'm like, where's that? I don't no He said, what you... He said, just go to this place right here, right here. He said, I'll tell you what, go to the grocery store. They have, they have alcohol. So I went to the grocery store, got some stuff for the guys. And I brought, they told me to bring like two bottles, one bottle of some Royal Crown, one bottle of uh, vodka, I think. And I've never bought alcohol before. I didn't even know if I was old enough to buy it, but it still sold it to them because I'm a second round pick. Right. That's different from now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I said, give me to it, everything that you think guys from age 25 to 35 would like. And the guy said, what do you mean? I Hey, I, listen, sir, I got 300 bucks. Just give me a bunch of alcohol. <laughs> he said, "But well, what do they want? I said, sir, I don't know. I just don't want to mess it up. They said something about some Crown and some vodka. Oh, you know, Crown Royal, blah, blah. I got vodka. So I had like four bags of alcohol. I never told this story. They loved me. I was the best rookie. I used to go pick the kids up if they were late and the guys, oh man, I'm all stressed I said, what's wrong? Man, I got to pick my kids up for my wife. I'll pick them up. <laughs> grab the keys, go pick them up. Bring the kids back. Hey, man, that your dad, ready right? They come out to me because defense about, we used to get out a little early. And because I was the only rookie. And, and hey, there you go. Great. They, they just, I wanted to love my teammates. Whatever y'all want me to do, I'll do it. So they didn't think that was funny. They didn't tie me up. Well, they did make me jump in a snowbank, but I thought that was fun. <laughs> That's that not too not, bad. That That's not too
0: bad. Nah, yeah. no. Nah. So uh, do you think it helped at all, too, that you were on the field right away, the fact that you played you know, from, from day one? It wasn't like you came in and, and you were just sitting around biding your time, that, that you were contributing and, and you know playing corner like you did your senior year at Florida State?
1: Well yeah, I thought uh um, Lindy Infante who was my coach and Hank Buller who was my coordinator and Dick Geron was my uh, Dick Duron was my favorite. I don't think if I ever get into the Hall of Fame his name will get mentioned. Dick Duran came to me one day, he said, I was stretching. He says, uh, we're playing Cleveland, I think it was Cleveland, preseason game. You're gonna start. I said what? I was just a, a, a like a third down guy, right? In my rookie year, you know, just when it Nick Diamond Nickel, I run in Diamond Nickel. Okay, great, this is awesome. I played a lot, and I, I think I was like three or four intercept three interceptions or something, which was like tied for the lead at one point. But the next year in training camp, I'm stretching. I'm thinking. I don't think we got pretty much the same guys. I'm thinking that because I was a cornerback, that I was just going to play nickel back again. He came to me, you're going to start. That's the one time, Michael, I said to myself, I'm glad I have on yellow pants <laughs> because I, I pissed my pants because it was so much adrenaline I couldn't hold it. Sure. And the, oh! And. The trainer was like, oh, that happens all the time. You're good. I was like, what? He said, what happened? You got to go to bed? I said, no, he told me I'm starting. They laughed so hard.
0: That's pretty I remarkable. Like, I can't imagine. I mean, you know, you hear the phrase all the time when somebody is nervous or scared that they piss their pants. But the fact that you actually did and the fact that you were fortunate enough yes. to be wearing yellow at the time, that just makes it one of the more ridiculous <laughs> yeah. stories I've heard. <laughs>
1: Nobody knew nothing. They were just like, I was laughing. I was like, all of the trainers knew. And they just kept laughing at me. I was like, I'm sorry. Dude. So I was nervous. They said, you're going to introduce you? I said, wait. I'm going to get introduced? Because I was a Nickelback. I never got introduced. This was amazing. I, and when they said my name, I said, God, where you at? Because I know this is heaven. Right. You run out. At the time, 65,000 people screaming. It was truly amazing.
0: So those first two years, you have Lindy Infante and Hank Bulla and Dick Juron as your primary coaches. And then after that 91 mm-hmm. season, the Packers clean house. And that's when Mike Holmgren comes in. Yes. And that's when Ron Wolf comes in. And they bring in assistant coaches like Steve Mariucci, Andy Reid, John Gruden, Dick Juron stays around, which I'm sure was pretty important to you. And then Ray Rhodes comes in as well. So for a guy that's two years into the league, You're just starting to to start to, you know, play and and get more playing time and develop and all those kinds of things, and then they clean house. What was that like going into that 92 season?
1: I remember Ron Wolf. We had just beat Minnesota. Lindy Infante is addressing the team. I'll never forget this. I was the only guy in that meeting that lasted. I'm not sure if Frank Winters was there or not in this meeting. I don't think he was. And Ron Wolf comes up. No, Lenny and introduces him. Like, hey, here's Ron Wolf, the new GM. Ron Wolf gets up there. Didn't stay long. Uh a lot of you won't be here next year. Because uh, I wanna win a championship and we gotta make some changes. He just left. And did, I'm like, okay. Did, did, you, did you piss your pants again? <laughs> no. <laughs> I should have Because I'm thinking, wait a minute, I just got here. I should be fine, but I had a three-year deal on my rookie year. My rookie deal was a three-year deal. So I'm thinking maybe I could stay one more year or they'll trade me. But my agent was like, well, if they cut you, you'll make more money because – Anybody would take a young corner. Sure. But uh, luckily I was there. He did He cleaned house. He cleaned house. And I remember getting a phone call from Ray Rhodes. And I said, uh-oh. Because was like my guy. You know, he was just the way he communicate." And he said, well, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, okay, what's up, Ray? Keep it 100 with me. Don't sugarcoat it. Just tell... Talk plain to me. I mean, like the military, I speak freely. He said, Well, we're going to draft Terrell Buckley with the fifth pick. I said, Great. So I'm thinking in my head, me and Terrell Buckley would be the corners of the future. Right? It'd be awesome. He went to Florida State, Jim Thorpe, winner, probably one of the most dynamic punt returners. Everything, and I loved Buck. He was like, I love him. He's like my brother. Because having Edgar Bennett shortly after that was even better because those are two guys that I loved at Florida State. But he said, no, no, no. That's the bad news. I mean, he said, no, that's the good news, that we're going to drive Terrell. The bad news, we want to move you to safety. I said, what? 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 <laughs> I'm a corner. I'm 190 pounds. I can't play safety. He said, no, 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 no. I got a vision of how I want to play you. On third down, I want you to come down and cover the third receiver or the best tight end. I said, again, I'm not big enough. No, 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 it's not about size. It's just that I know you will accept the challenge and I know you're not scared. I said, okay, I'm with it. Let's go. He said, I think one day, this this is his words, verbatim. If you do exactly what I tell you, your frame of mind, one day you'll be a pro bowler, all pro, and eventually Hall of Famer.
0: Well, we got two of those I three, said, and we're listen. working on the third one.
1: I know, right? I said, Ray, you're so full of it. I told you to keep it hunting. He looked at me, because I eventually saw him. He looked at me. He wasn't He wasn't joking. He was like, no, I really, I I, I got I, I I don't want big safeties anymore. I want safeties who can do everything: blitz, quarterback, and do this interception, cover people. You know, because I don't want people to know what I'm doing when I go to my. If you always have people running in, they oh they're in dime. I can draw plays to attack it. But if I leave my base on the field and my safety can cover their third wide receiver, I can do lots of things. And he drew up something that I was so excited, and it worked. It worked. So I was bought in. I moved to safety, and oh, well.
0: You know, one of the things that I really like about talking with you, especially when I was in Green Bay, is that you're so smart at understanding defenses and, and kind of being able to explain it to people like me who didn't play the game. And that's why anybody who is interested in the Packers or football in general should watch those X's and O's videos that you do with Tom Silverstein after Packers games because they're, they're so informational and educational. And so I'm curious, at that point in time, did you still feel um, as a young player that you grasped things well enough to kind of understand it at a higher level? Because you were asked to do so many different things at this very young age, and obviously you succeeded, but you know, were you confident in your ability to get the X's and O's from, a, from an early point in your career?
1: That's another fantastic question that I wish more people would ask. Because when you say, how does this guy have this talent? But it doesn't work out. Because he doesn't grasp the system. How does this quarterback have a great arm, but he had five offensive coordinators? Why doesn't it work? You got to sit with every system because I don't care what system you put me in, I'm still all pro. And that's the way I thought. So when Hank Buller's system was gone, Ray Rose system came in, and then we had Donatello system and then we had Bob Slowick's system, to me, just explain it to me. And I want to know everybody else's position. Oh, I got it. I just need to know what's the concept of it. And I learned that from my mom to be student of the game. Right. Even in, she taught me, I never heard of the word cliff notes before, or even taking notes. And I used to take notes and, in the meeting room and where other guys were just kind of sit there with their hoodies on. I said, well, Oh, okay. This guy does this. And I remember going to Andy Reed. I said, Andy Reed, come here, man. That's how we talk. He's a <laughs> tight end coach. Why does Mark Chimura, who's my buddy? That's my brother. I love him. Why can't I cover him? He said, Oh, you got it all wrong. With well, guys with six five, two forty, 40, you don't get in a pushing match. You get to the spot where you think they're going to be. So you need to learn the West Coast offense. I say, oh, that's what y'all said, Two Jack, all go special X right Z hook. Yes, you got to learn that. Otherwise, it's a guessing game, and they go get you on double moves. So he taught me the concepts of the West Coast offense, which came from Bill Walsh. And at the time, Michael, a lot of teams were running his offense. It's so arrogant. It's so arrogant offense. They don't change much. Because Steve Young would run the same thing as Brett Favre, but in Steve Young's mind, I can run it better. Of course, Leroy knows what two-jet-all-go means, but nobody can cover Jerry Rice. So that's the arrogance part of it. Once you learn what the... See, the first thing we would do well, I would do it exclusively. I would study the officer coordinator, the play caller. That was going to be my next question is, how
0: much did you pay attention to the play caller?
1: Um, all the time. That's the that's the biggest thing that people just don't know. You don't study personnel first. I know Jerry Rice is good. Right. I know Chris <laughs> Carter has the best hands in us. In the world, I know Randy Moss, no one can cover him deep. But if I get to know their coordinators, if they coached in college, they carry the same stuff and kind of know their concepts. Now I bring in the personnel, I have an advantage. Now I just got to go out and believe and trust in my skills because, again, Play callers are masterful of what they do because they got they kind of guessing in a way, right? But at the same time, I studied them first because I would come in. Who's the Who's the head? I know who the head coach. Who's the coordinator? No, that's not the question. Andy said, "Ask who's calling the plays." Smart. I said, "Okay, so how many head coaches call plays?" Well, well. You have the Vince Lombardi, the Tom Landrys. They just kind of manage. Okay. Then you may have a Joe Gibbs. He does it all. He'll call plays and he'll manage. And then you get to the Mike McCarthy's of the world. You know, we had some of those some coaches back then or some of these head coaches who call plays. We had a few of those types. And then I understood, okay. And so I said to myself, if a head coach called played, I got to go back and research him. Did he play football? Was he offense or defense? Was his philosophy here or there? Oh, I get it now. So once you do that work, now you can spend time on personnel. Because everybody's good in the NFL.
0: So, studying play callers and then studying personnel, I I can understand directly how that helped with your play in the secondary, but one of the best elements of your game is how good you were as a blitzer, and you're a member of the prestigious 2020 club with 20 career sacks and 20 interceptions, and so... That is one area where I would think it's more about maybe cadence study. Were you a big cadence guy trying to time things because you were so good, going back to Florida State days, really, at slicing Mm -hmm. through the line of scrimmage? Is that all cadence?
1: Well, no. It's studying protection. Okay. Cadence is there to fool me. If you listen to cadence, you'll jump off sides and you'll wonder what's going on because they think every number, and every color means something when actually it doesn't. Got it. It just doesn't. But if you study their protection, when do they slide? When do they max protect? And when do they go, man, oh, so I got to know down and distance first. That'll predict what, cur- what protection I think they're going to be in. If Reggie White's to the left, there's a good chance they're going to slide to Reggie. If you didn't, he'd kill you. So I was always taught if they slide to Reggie, I can blitz off the back. Worst case, I'll get a back. I'd rather go through a back than a tackle, six, seven, three hundred 300 pounds. So if it's third and long, they definitely slide to Reggie. If I'm blitzing, I come out the backside, get a sack now. If it's third and medium, oh, they're going to zone block. So if I don't come up in the box, they won't count me. So stay back, hold your hold, – just hold your – just stay back as long as you can. Look at the play clock because it's right behind the quarterback's uh, – as I'm facing my right, his left ear. You can see the clock. When it gets to 10 seconds, that's when I start to move. At that point, he has to either call a timeout or, oh, hey, I'm stuck. He just got to hope I ain't coming because they haven't counted me. Right. But if they're doing a man, if a guy points at you, well, he's, he already knows if I come, I'm his guy. So I would make a call to have ready to switch it up. we run a game. If okay. You think they're a man. So I spent more time in the uh, Frank Winters head that with defense linemen, because I want to know what Frank Winters, because he would know every coverage, I right. mean I mean every protection. So I used to have a lot of great conversation with Frank Winters, who I think was, was I, well, in my opinion, smartest lineman I've ever talked to. That says a lot, because I've talked to hundreds of them. And he told me everything that I was explaining to him was I was wondering if I was off basis. He said, no, you got it. Now you just got to trust it. And he said, you know, it may not always work. But he said, I will say this when a safety sacks your quarterback is demoralizing, you know, it it really is because you're thinking you you should see see the guy coming, you should pick him up. But. So that kind of stuff I studied, I really enjoyed doing it. I really yeah. did. It was you, fun.
0: You know, listening to you talk, it's very clear the, the heightened level of understanding you had about the game, and that was obviously your reputation when you were in the league, too. Uh, if you think back to your average NFL locker room, so pick any year from your career, what percentage of guys would you say uh, you know, have a really good understanding of X's and O's, and what percentage of them would not be as as smart as fans might
1: think? Ooh, that's another good one. I would say accident let's just do excellent o's first. I would say ninety percent no excellent O's back of the hand. Got it. Ten percent is just talent.
0: <laughs> gotcha.
1: It's just the Daryl Green, uh Deion Sanders. They don't need where's your top guy? I'm going to cover him. <laughs> that's all you know, what I mean, Michael Irvin, wide receiver or Jerry Rice receiver, just throw me the ball. Randy Moss, 10%. But the the other 90%, they, they understand it. Now, what's the reciprocal of that is talent. Because some guys, like, you know, these X and O's kind of boring. Yeah, I'm not really finna buy into that. I bet just fifty percent of those guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and, I, and it's kind of weird to say, but just just buy in. I think only fifty percent of the people really buy in to the scheme. To say I'm in the A gap, and nothing will bring me out of that A gap because I know my brother's blitzing in the B gap, but no. I'm going to peep my head in the same gap as him. We both get blocked, and a guy runs through the A-gap for 90 yards. That's frustrating for coaches. If I tell you no one can get outside of you, you can line up two inches from the sideline to make sure nobody got outside of you. Everything inside of me, I did my job. But no, I'm going to stick my head inside. The guy dipped in and dip out and runs for 100. It happens. That's frustrating. That number should be in the 90s. But I don't think it'll ever get over 50%. Wow. That's Some
0: really interesting. Say, Man.
1: It's frustrating, too. <laughs> just do your job. If you do your job, you'll be all pro. I tell people that. But if you don't, mm, you're going to get your coach fired. That's why coaches get fired all the time.
0: So as you start to move into the early part of the 90s there, and we mentioned the overhaul in the front office, we mentioned you know, the trade for Brett Favre on, in February of 92, and then we alluded earlier to the idea that a year later they're going to sign Reggie White for a four-year deal worth $17 million to make him the highest paid defensive lineman uh, pass rusher in the league. Were you starting to feel... Um, the, the franchise building toward what would eventually be three straight NFC title games, back-to-back Super Bowl appearances, and then that Super Bowl win in 96? Was the snowball starting to go downhill for you guys?
1: Well, yeah, because I kept seeing different guys every year that improved the position. Because we loved guys like uh, Andre Rising, who, you know, didn't couldn't latch on with a team. We loved guys like Desmond Howard. If it wasn't for Desmond Howard, I wouldn't have a ring. We loved guys like Don Beebe. I mean, we love you know you know guys that people may not know. You got to Google to see who was our starting middle linebacker. I mean, it was Ron Cox in the Super Bowl. It just seemed like whatever piece we needed, Ron Wolf went out and got it to win. And I never forget this we beat carolina championship game. I'm running around, shaking hands with all the fans, and I see a sign say 30 years of misery has ended. We're going to the Super Bowl. That was very impactful to me because in 1990 and 91 we were 6 and 10, 4 and 12, something like we were just not a good team. It was a losing culture. And it took 4 or 5 years to kind of flip the roster and flip the thinking. See, you could flip the roster, but if you're not flipping the the mental aspects of it, it's still going to be a losing team. But we flipped it saying, okay, we got guys who want to ring like Mike Holmgren to come in to say, okay, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way you manage your team, and that's how you treat your players. I mean, bringing in food, uh, we had haircuts. Uh, We had planes for our families, Uh, anything that – I remember we went up in uh, Bob Harlan's office and said, hey, man, listen, Bob, these showers are too small. The lockers are too crowded. He changed it over in the next year with all the new stuff. And I said, man, this is what a winning culture is. Whatever you want, you got it. And, And next thing you know, you know, and I remember the Saturday before the Super Bowl, Two things were very impactful to me. Fritz Sherman's brother was very sick. He told Fritz to tell us to win the Super Bowl. And Mike Holmgren gets up there with a table full of something. I didn't know what it was, and everybody kept asking me because they know I'm real nosy, and they know me and Coach are pretty tight. But he didn't tell me because obviously I would have told some guys. And he pulled it off, and it was all—it was the winning share of money. He said, now go win the Super Bowl. That was amazing. Truly amazing. From I mean, a, he was a philosopher when it comes to getting his team ready to play. He was great.
0: You know, that that ninety six team, I think, was was one of the more remarkable teams of the last, you know, forty, fifty years in that you guys went thirteen and three during the regular season. In the playoffs, your average margin of victory, average, was 17 points in the three playoff games. You have the highest scoring offense in the league, and your defense allows the fewest points in the league. Um, you know, when you, when you think about that group, with Favre winning an MVP that year, the first of three in a row, with you going to the All-Pro team, going to the Pro Bowl almost every year for a four- or five-year stretch, Reggie's playing at a high level, um, I mean, w- were you guys game in and game out thinking that you were the best team in the league?
1: I remember Bob McGinn asked me, "Hey man, can y'all go 19 and 0?" I said, "You're damn right." It was headlines everywhere. <laughs> it really was. Because I, I, after losing to Dallas in the championship game, we were an ascending team. We were so, <clears throat> excuse me, we were so confident and arrogant that we just felt we were gonna win the Super Bowl. We just wait, wait for you guys to uh, to tell us where it's gonna be. I mean, we really felt that, and it it got the guys. I guess it, well. Back then, bulletin board, material. you, it'll give the rat's ass if you can back it up, you know? Right. And that's what coach said. He said, I don't care if he thinks that, I'm not go back it up. I mean, and we got brought down because I think we lost to like the Colts. They were an 0-11 team or something, but we didn't even care. We just, can you just get us, like Golden State, can you just get us to the playoffs, please? And it was just one of these things. You felt we had every piece of the puzzle. And our special team with Desmond Howard was some of the best I've ever seen. I mean, it was a real weapon, all three areas. And that's the way uh, Mike Hunger managed the team. Everybody had to pull their weight. We didn't have people on the sideline that wasn't dirty. If you were active, you played. We played a lot of guys. I mean, the Bruce Wilkinson of the world, the Earl Dotsons. I mean, everybody played. It was just, it just felt awesome, too, man. Just a a big bunch of, you know, misfits all thrown together. No one wanted Ryzen, but we did. No one wanted Desmond, but we did. Go get him. Yeah, we need Desmond to come here and just take that game to another level of returns. I mean, we welcomed him. and He was just as important to us. He he was just as important as Brett, Reggie, and myself because when he was out there, he was a difference maker. So, yeah, you can start to feel it coming together.
0: You know, um, that Super Bowl was 35-21 over the Patriots, and and at the beginning of our conversation when we shifted to Green Bay, you talked about how getting off the plane as the second-round pick, there were people there cheering for you and waiting for you, and I was reading an article, I think it was written by Bob McGinn, it might even have been from his Super Bowl book, where he talked about when you guys got back to Green Bay after winning the Super Bowl, there were 60,000 people at the stadium and 150,000 people for the parade. And now those might not seem like big numbers, but for people who don't know, you know, I just moved out of Green Bay about a year ago, and when I left, the population was about 106,000. So you're talking about more people than the entire city coming out for a parade, and this was a while ago, before the recent uptick in people moving back to Green Bay. So how did it feel coming back to a place that, that just almost worships you guys and, and almost views the Packers like you know a different denomination of church.
1: If I'll be very honest with you, it felt like the lead singer in any band that you love, it felt like the whole entire state realized that the Packers were bad at one point, but now they were on top of the world. And the actual name Lombardi is on the trophy. And I mean, until the next year for a whole year, we celebrated a whole year. I mean, when you win a championship in a big market, it's pretty impactful. Right. When you win a championship in the smallest market, it's history because I make kids now. I was five years old at the parade. And I was four years old when I saw you in training camp after the Super Bowl. And here's my Super Bowl thirty six jersey. I mean, I, I mean, that brings tears to your eyes because you're thinking just they won the first two Super Bowls and it's been a drought. Because if you won. I thought I was talking to Bill Curry. You know, he won a couple of championships, and and you know, Barge Star and that group. They probably thought they'd win, then forever, until they just stopped playing. But it was just, it was amazing. It was. I was in awe because I didn't know. I said after the Pro Bowl, this'll die down. No, 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 no. It still hasn't died down, to be honest with you.
0: That's true. That's true. I don't imagine you have to pay for many meals or drinks in the state of Wisconsin anymore.
1: Nah. You know, with me, though, the person I am, I use buy it for people. Sure. I and know. I appreciate them. Yeah. But yeah. I know what you mean, though. I mean, it's just, a, and that's one of the reasons why I moved up in Wisconsin from Jacksonville after my career because the people here are just so amazing.
0: When, um, when you have the chance to reflect on, on some of those 90s teams and, and you know knowing that you got to play with Reggie White, knowing that you got to play with Brett, knowing that you yourself are a Hall of Fame caliber player and in the mind of many people you should be in the Hall of Fame um, and you know hopefully will get there. how do you, um, how do you think those, those Packers teams are remembered? Like if you had to think of some traits that, that people should associate mm-hmm. with those 90s teams, what, what would you be proud of uh, leaving behind for fans to think about?
1: Yeah, you know, I just want to say, I don't think it'll be many times a team will win a Super Bowl, number one in defense, special teams, and offense. But not only that, in the 90s, you had three teams that really pretty much dominated, Dallas and San Francisco and the Packers. Right. And when you look at all time greatest teams, if they look at well, the analytics, we didn't have analytics back then, but if you look at the analytics part of it, I think our numbers would match up with anybody, including the 86 Bears and all these other teams that were great that get all of this love and the 96 team doesn't. We're just so proud of that. And and not to mention, it made us even feel better when Aaron Rodgers and Woodson, the guys, won it in 2010. You know, this is amazing because we didn't have to wait another 30 years to win another Super Bowl. but. I try to remind people that 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 was one of the greatest seasons of all time in NFL history because of what we accomplished because we were at the best at every category. So we were pretty excited.
0: You know, you had the opportunity to be around Brett for so many years. And at one point, you guys had a TV show together. And of course, you have been in touch yeah. throughout, you know, the the time since you guys retired. Um, you know, there was a lot going on with Brett at the time, from winning three straight MVPs to a summer where everybody finds out that he's, you know, going to, to get some help for, a um, you know, a, a drug problem that he has, and he's still winning MVPs. And I, I'm just curious, when you kind of think back to, to Brett and what he was able to do on the field and everything that was going on and being around him, um, was he just kind of like a like a larger-than-life sort of figure? Because I can't imagine balancing all the different things that he had going on. And, and look, there's the reason nobody has won three straight MVPs before or since.
1: It's kind of hard to explain to people how Brett Favre is. The guy is truly amazing. I mean, I love the guy. He was... It's just – I get emotional even talking about my teammates because I love them so much. But he was just – I wrote a book about it with uh, Rob Reichel and said that he was one of the best teammates. It's not the best teammates of all time. This guy was just going through a lot of things, but you couldn't tell it. He would always give us his all in football. It just – the guy was well, flannel shirt and some jeans and just, Rodley, what's up, man? He's a problem solver. I mean, he's not a rah-rah guy. That was Reggie White or me. The guy just wanted to make a difference, man. He would just come in the locker. if He saw African-Americans playing spades. He, hey, I'm playing Knicks. He doesn't even know how to play, but he loves his teammates. <laughs> some, of the, some of the white guys playing backgammon or something, or some of the other guys going hunting, or some of the young guys playing Atari or Sega Genesis. Hey, I got Knicks. He, no player does that. When you come from another foundation, I mean, he he came from Atlanta. He was a first-round pick with the Packers. Now, if he's a first-round pick with the Packers, okay, I get it. You're a top pick. You're supposed to be. But he came from Atlanta, and he just wanted to fit in and just, hey, man, I'll do my thing. I remember one day he threw an interception in practice, and he was dejected. He was kicking the dirt. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. It's my job to get it back. You just go let me get it back. You play the way you play. That's the only way I'm going to feel comfortable. Make them throw the same way you threw on the ass of the best. He started laughing. Be that guy. Don't be this. No, we want you to be yourself. Just go play. That's what a defense is for. So, and I tell people, oh, he threw all these interceptions the most of any time. I say, you got to take 38 off of them because I would have got 38 of them back. <laughs> and that's how I look at it. That's my brother, man. I love him, man. The man's great. And I just wish more people could experience somebody that doesn't see no color ever. He's from Mississippi. He's from the South, like me. His dad, Big Irv. I mean, his his wife and his mother, Bonita, these are great people. Great people. That's always been amazing people because they probably grew up around the same weird stuff like I did if you fuck yourself and just say, I ain't with that. I ain't with that. I'm not with that. I'm with just being normal human being. So, yeah, Brett Favre's amazing. I don't... I don't have a a good description of what he means to the sport and mean to me, but I just know that I love the guy and everybody should just have a conversation whenever you would love it. Yeah, you just would.
0: You know, I want to pick up on something you mentioned there really quickly. We talked earlier about your experience at Robert E. Lee and then Florida State and how in those two environments within the football bubble, racism was not a factor. Did you ever experience or see or hear stories about any racism across the NFL during your time in the league?
1: No, I ain't never heard, no, not me, Not not one iota. I've never heard... The N word fly. I've never heard a guy come out their history with the Confederate flag. And nope, never, nope, no. And I'd be surprised even though it was in some of these locker rooms because I think some guys they had because most guys they wouldn't deal with that. Right. And they probably did deal with it. Probably did because most of the time in the locker room we don't even talk about it but something like that would have easily have leaked out. I remember Ezra Tuarola, a young man who was, who eventually came out. I love Ezra, that's my guy. I love him, that's my teammate. He got all his hate mail and people just mean to saying all kinds of stuff and that's my guy, (laughs) I love all my teammates. And when they leave the building, that's their business. I don't tell them I'll their life. I just know when they swipe their key card and it turns green and they enter 1265, you my brother. And when you swipe it when you leave, you still my brother. And when you need me, anything I can do for you, including blood, you got it from me. That's, the only, that's why football is the ultimate team sport. It's the only sport that you've got to get that many guys that don't be on the same page.
0: I, so I, I'm, I'm glad that throughout your career you didn't experience anything in terms of racist acts or treatments and things like that, but I, I think you would agree that the league itself can, can still do better in terms of African-American coaches getting more opportunities, in terms of players being able to express themselves more freely. Do you think that, that there's progress being made there? And, and with the current events of the last couple of months, do you expect that you know, assuming the 2020 season happens later this year, do you expect there to be more progress in, in terms of seeking racial equality for the NFL and for athletes in general?
1: I hope so. But now the NFL has been pathetic when it comes to um, black head coaches, uh, black coordinators. Um, They're starting to get a few women coaches, which is – I'm excited about that. Uh, But until they get a black owner, that's when I'll say things have changed because you still got, you know, 31 owners – that pretty much they got a lock on everything. Right. That's why I like. That's why I love Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson. These guys are owners. They didn't ask, you know, to for a job. I'm gonna own it. Until you get black ownership, I mean, if the league is 75 to 80 percent African American, you would think there'd be a lot of African Americans working. In the higher up positions. Right. But it's just not. And until you get an owner at the table to say, this is not right, it's going to, you got to just keep fighting. I mean, you got to just keep speaking out. But sometimes speaking out costs you a lot of money. And people know that, that controls money. So you, you have to just be quiet and work. But be quiet and work; it hadn't helped. Right. It just hadn't helped, and I and the NFL can be at the tip of the sword and doing this, so all the other leagues it can understand what's going on. Because the NBA, I think the NBA is going to always be out in front. But the, I mean, even soccer, black ownership is something I thought most white people would love because it's more diverse. Right. Cause we all make the same money, green, gold. I mean, green and white, whatever. <laughs> I don't have any, but we all can make money. But if you keep and suppress people from making money that you make, I think that's the thing. And I and I had a guy come up to me who was a full-fled Trump supporter. And um, what does Black Lives, Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter mean? I said, sir, let's have a conversation. He said, okay, let's do that. I said, listen, forget about Black Lives Matter for a minute. Just forget about that, because you ain't going to get that. I'm going to tell you something that you're going to get. What matters to you? He listed, oh, my family, my shotgun I just bought, my kids, um, my new car, my new truck, You know, my family, you know, money, 401k. I said, any of those things that you named, would you ever put your knee on it and kill it? You're not going to kill your 401k. You're not going to kill nobody in your family because it matters to you. I'm not asking to be equal to you. I'm just asking for you to matter, for me to just to matter. So you treat me the same thing you treat, everything you list. He said, you know what? I get it now. He said, that's not a terrorist thing to say. That's the most right thing to say. I said, that's all I'm saying. That, that, I'm asking for you to, to see that when I get pulled over, when they approach my car, the police, I want them to approach my car with the same pulse when they approach yours. He said, Yeah, you know, I, I never even thought about it. I never. I, I just never thought about it like that. I said, Yeah, if you get pulled over, you your heart ain't racing. If it is, it's for you may get a ticket and go home. My heart racing cause I don't know if I'm gonna get out of here 'cause it's some police. Because being from the South, Michael, I'm telling you being from the south, the KKK would walk right, right outside your window. Jeez. And then they and it was and more white people were more upset than the black people. 'Cause y'all making us look bad. But it's a free country. So they say, listen, join the force so you can do it legally. I heard that my whole life. Now, that don't mean all white police officers are alike, but the ones inside of the division, if you see this, as I would in my locker room, if I heard any white guy or black guy say anything negative or racist, i step to him and correct it. And say, I can't play with this guy. Y'all got to get him out of here because he's going to get hurt or he's going to hurt somebody. Because his thinking is not the same. But it's how you were brought up. And it was rough. It was rough. But you know what that guy said? You know what? I I get it now. Because he just see all these protests and, you know, he's 78 years old. So he ain't, I mean... He, he, he just see a bunch of guys and they see the violence and all that. I said, look past all that. Forget about all that for a minute. Just tell me what matters to you. He named 20 things. I said, just treat me just like you treat everything that you named and we will get along great. Because he said, he did tell me that his friend told him the reason why he don't like it because he think that one day he going to wake up and the population gonna be more mixed than what he grew up and that, that scares him i got sick to my stomach <laughs> that's awful i said i wouldn't be friends with people like that why are you friends with-? he said hey, i let people think i didn't want to think i said yeah but he absolutely you know what you think we're 13 percent of the country <laughs> how are we gonna ever take over y'all why you would even think that
0: and even if it did why happen that say- way who cares it doesn't it doesn't matter <laughs> it-
1: we're going to all make money. we all going to be friends. But it's, everything is politics. Because so he had a mask on. I had a mask on. And his friend yelled at him for having a mask on. I said, man, listen. I, I'm talking to you. I'm not even talking to people. If you want to talk to me, you got to have a mask on. Okay? And we're going to talk from six feet apart. We can still talk. But everything is so political. If we did this interview a year from now... I bet you, things will be changed.
0: Oh, I certainly hope so. Things will be
1: changed. I tell you, yep. Yeah, people got to vote. If you want to get rid of these monuments, uh, statues, that uh, oppression, go vote on it. Go vote, vote. Even if it don't go in your way, at least you can sleep at night and say, "At least I voted." Right. But if you're not gonna vote. I don't really want to hear your complaints, because voting is free.
0: And not only that, but the more people that have an apathetic attitude toward voting and just say, oh, I'm only one vote, it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, you are only one vote. But if hundreds and thousands of people around the country start thinking the same way, then that's what what sort of undermines the idea of the democratic process with everybody having their own voice. So you, you got to at least go out and Absolutely. and do what you can because after you've pulled that lever or pushed that button or, you know, filled in that circle on your ballot, it's out of your hands, but you did what this country is allowing you to do.
1: That's what my mom told us. She said, I remember women couldn't vote. I remember black people couldn't vote. So if you're an African American, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but just vote. Just vote. If you're a woman, go vote. If you don't like... And then, you know what else she told me real quick? My mom was smart. She wouldn't concentrate on these federal stuff. she say, vote locally. Right. If you don't like these... The police or, or the governor or the mayor, vote him out. Vote him out. People... Their salary is tied to your taxes. I say, really? She said, Yeah. She said, Everybody look at the president. But you need to get to the Senate, and you need to get to the House. I say, Mom, are you preaching. This was I was in high school. The mayor races, vote, and all my siblings, we registered to vote as soon as we turned eighteen. We were registered to vote
0: yeah and i'm I'm guilty of that too. and, I, I have... and we
1: mailed in voting, too. We did mail in voting, yeah,' my two brothers was in the army, I mean, in the military, so we did mail in voting, stuff when I was in Wisconsin, and it was fine.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm guilty of, of what your mom was encouraging you, um, you know, not to do. In terms of, I get too wrapped up in the idea of the the presidential election being the single most important way that your vote matters. But it really does make a difference when you when you can learn about some of the, the local officials and what they're going to be doing in your own state. So that's a that's a great lesson from uh, from your mom. And and Leroy, I can't thank you enough for taking so much time to talk about this and for being so honest and open with. some some of those stories and some of your opinions, and you know, I, I really appreciated all the times you helped me in, in Green Bay. And so, to be able to to keep in touch and chat now and have such a an honest dialogue was uh, was a lot of fun for me. So I hope you enjoyed it as well.
1: Okay, my brother, I really did. I really did. I really appreciate it, and I hope your podcast. We want to number. Well, will be number one. When we put this out, but <laughs> I hope it's something that you can make a lot of money on. You deserve it. I'm glad that you did it yourself. Instead of working for somebody, you're an owner now. Congratulations.
0: So there you have it, a conversation with one of the Packers' all-time greats, safety Leroy Butler. I hope you guys laughed as hard as I did when he told the story about literally peeing his pants at practice because he was so nervous when the coaches told him he was going to start a game. Obviously, I've heard of stories about players, you know, not being able to sleep or not having an appetite. Occasionally, you hear about a guy throwing up before a game, but the fact that he actually peed in his pants and the trainer saw him was unreal. I had never heard that story, and I was dying laughing as soon as he told me. There were so many good stories in this episode because Leroy has an unbelievable football mind. He remains an astute observer and teacher, frankly, when it comes to schematic principles and coverages and elements of a defense. You could just hear the way he talked about knowing the responsibilities of all 11 guys on defense and all 11 guys on offense, that this is a guy who has, you know, around the highest football IQ of players that you will find. And so I relied on Leroy a lot to explain coverage coverages to me or explain principles, philosophies, and sometimes to point out things that that I got wrong, because I've never played this sport before. He's played it at the highest level, and so his insight was tremendously helpful during my time covering the Packers, especially when a new defensive system came in with Mike Pettin. And obviously, I'm extremely grateful to Leroy for being so honest and open and forthright about his experiences with racism growing up in the Jacksonville area, and then also what it's like to be an observer of everything that's Happening now, you know, sort of juxtaposing it with the situations that he dealt with as a child, all the progress that is starting to be made now through this Black Lives Matter movement, all this necessary progress for our country that has for so long oppressed people that didn't deserve it. It's kind of fascinating to hear, you know, a guy who's been on both ends of the spectrum, seeing some of the progress now and, and being on the wrong end of some of those heinous and disgusting acts when he was growing up in Florida. So I'm extremely happy and extremely. Extremely honored that he shared some of those things as honestly as he did on this show. It was it was really fascinating and, and really eye-opening to hear some of the things that he had to say. Of course, episodes of this podcast are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, google play apple Podcasts, spotify and just about anywhere else you listen to shows if you happen to be listening on an apple device please leave us a rating preferably five stars if you like the show and feel free to leave a comment as well because i do read all of them and last but not least don't forget support for this program is brought to you by manscaped and for a limited time you can get 20 percent off your entire order plus free shipping using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off anything on their website, plus free shipping at manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. Until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.